Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm uh, one of the pastors at SBC, so it's really great to be able to be here with you this morning, to be able to share God's word with you, to be able to be challenged, to be able to just hear God motivate us to follow him wholeheartedly. Um, so if you have your uh, Bibles with you, will you please open them up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22 will be the passage we'll be reading. And we're going to be touching that and looking at that in a, a few moments. Uh, but frequently in life, as, as we do life in general, as we go day to day uh, and do a bit of life, we have expectations that certain things are going to go certain ways. And often our reality of what that expectation is like and the reality of... Um, how that, the reality of what that expectation will be like will be different. So, for example, sometimes we think that something's going to go well, but it actually goes badly, or it goes badly, and we thought it was going to go badly, but it really goes well. Um, we can use an example of going on holiday, and we're hoping that the holiday is going to be absolutely fantastic. It's going to be sunny. We're going to be able to enjoy our time at the beach, get our costumes on, get a golden tan, and uh, we're going to come back absolutely rest, rested and just enjoyed the sun. But when we, when we arrive at our destination, um, we find out it's raining. We forgot to pack any warm clothes because we expected it to be hot, and we forgot our toothbrush. And uh, so you end up using your finger uh, to do you. And you know, every one of us have had to do that at some point. And you're just never satisfied with how much you use your finger. It just doesn't clean your teeth well enough. And so you are disappointed because what you expected was going to be a whole lot, um, or you expected it to be great, but the reality of it was worse. But sometimes it's the other way around as well. Sometimes we expect things to go really badly, but we pleasantly surprised on how well it goes. Um, Alyssa and um, um, Megan wanted to go watch Beauty and the Beast a couple of months back. And uh, so Mark and I uh, had the unfortunate uh, uh, thing of being our arms twisted to make sure that we go and watch this movie uh, with them. And so my expectations of going to go watch Beauty and the Beast was really, really low. And when I got there and the movie had started, it wasn't, we weren't long into the movie, and they started to sing. So it was like a part musical as well. So my expectations from, man, this is going to be bad. This is going to be horrendous. But when we were in the movie, I actually found it pretty funny. Um, and I laughed uh, quite a lot. And I laugh when nobody else seems to find things funny. And uh, so it's just me laughing. And uh, it went, actually really enjoyed it. But as a husband, it kind of puts you in a bit of a, um, bit of a pickle. Because now you can't really say you enjoyed it a lot. Um, <laughs> Because the next time she wants to go watch a girly movie, guess what she's going to say? Oh, but you didn't say you were going to enjoy Beauty and the Beast, but you actually did. And so when she asked me, how do you think it went? I went, yeah, it was good, but I wouldn't watch it again. Uh, I wouldn't watch that again. Expectation was it would be bad, but the reality of it was really good. And the same when it comes with Jesus. When Jesus encounters the world, there's this expectation that people have, but the reality of who he is, he brings something different. And we see this in Jesus' earthly ministry. The people of Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and who was going to kick out the Romans. He was going to establish Israel as the powerhouse of the world to an extent that the rest of the nations were going to run bringing tributes to Israel. 
and to be able to come and praise Israel for how great they are and also to acknowledge that their God is the one true God. But what they did not expect was that the king of, that was going to be the Messiah was also the one who was prophesied about called the suffering servant. And they did not put together that the suffering servant and that the king were going to be one and of the same people. And really, only after Jesus' death and resurrection do his disciples even realize that it is because um, that, it is, that it is one and the same person, that the suffering servant, Jesus, who died on the cross, is also now the king who's going to come and bring his kingdom. And so it is one and the same person there. And so we see that their expectation was too limited, was, um, and often just too narrow, and often really, really just wrong altogether. And we also see in today when Jesus encounters the world that our expectation of what Jesus is is often different to who he really is. It can be something as simple as we expect that when we come to Jesus that our life is just going to be peachy afterwards. That it's going to be a life of prosperity, a life of ease, and a life of comfort. But the reality is that when we encounter Christ, it does not mean that those things will go away, but actually there's a call to follow him in trial and persecution. There are communities that, and we can even, some of us might have even grown up into a similar environment where following Jesus was the right thing to do as long as you just didn't take it seriously. As long as you just didn't take it um, with all your heart. But if you had to open up, your word of a, open up the word of God and a person who grew up in that kind of community had to open it up and read God's word, there would be the shock and this surprise to come and realize that Jesus actually calls us not only just to take him seriously, but to lay our lives down there. And so this morning, as we look at our passage in, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, and really actually the, the remainder of this chapter gives us three different stories that help us to understand this real Jesus. We might have an expectation of who he is, but it gives us a bit of insight into what he really is like and what he expects of us. And unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack all three. Maybe the next time I preach, we will tackle the next one and maybe the one after that. But today, we're just going to focus on, on this particular one of Jesus. Um, yeah, so let's read verses 18 to 22. It says this, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Lord, we, we come before you this, this morning just so aware that your word is alive um, that it is there to encourage us, that it's there to lead us in the right direction, to help us to know how to live, to understand you more. And I just pray, Lord, as we do this this, this morning, as we unpack this scripture, that you would just help us um, to see what you are trying to say. Help us to grasp it, help us to understand it, um, encourage us. I pray, that, Lord, that you'd use my, my simple explanations, my inadequate explanations of this passage to glorify your name. We just come away with a greater sense of who God is. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
So here we, we see the first disciple, also seen as a scribe, comes up to Jesus and says to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus was in the, the business of making disciples, of making people come and follow him. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he was hoping to achieve as well. And so surely Jesus is going to be absolutely over the moon. I mean, a man with the pedigree of a scribe who knew God's word, who um, would have been thoroughly committed to God, is coming and saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. It kind of, this commitment rings out, um, it kind of reminds us of Ruth's commitment to Naomi when Naomi's trying to get rid of Ruth. And uh, Naomi says, uh, Ruth says to this to Naomi, she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. We see that in Ruth 1, 16 to 17. The thorough commitments here, we see that from this man. I'll follow you wherever you go. But when Jesus looks at him, it seems that Jesus sees past this commitment that this man has and sees less of a commitment, but more of an overconfidence. One that would remind us maybe of Peter when Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified on the cross. And uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you're all going to abandon me. And Peter stands up boldly and says these words in Matthew 26, 33 and 35. He says, even if all fall away on account of you, even if these rest of the disciples fall away because of you, I will never, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And we all know the story that Peter will go and deny Jesus three times, even making promises that he did not know this man, this Jesus. So Jesus is probably testing the scribe's commitment here, but he's probably also pointing out a problem in the man's, um, in the man's attention, um, in the man's um, statement that he's, ma- he's making in his commitment. And Jesus is probably seeing that this man has made the connection between following Jesus and the fact that Jesus will probably be the Messiah who's going to kick out the Romans. So the thought process this guy could possibly be having is that, well, if I follow Jesus, Jesus will one day become king, and man, it's always good to be friends with the king. And if I can become friends with the king before he became king, oh, man, this is going to benefit me a lot. And maybe it isn't even so crass as that. Maybe he did just see Jesus. He, he heard him and really enjoyed that. But what Jesus' response is that, Birds of, I don't, I don't have a place to lay my head. He's trying to show the man that he hasn't necessarily taken into account the cost that is required to follow him. That you want to be with me because I might be king, but you do not know that there will be trials, that there will be a cost, that there will be difficulties in following me. Or you like what I hear, or what I say, and what you hear, that's great. But to follow me requires that there will be difficulties and there will be trials. And so regardless of what the situation is and what the real reason behind this man's motive is, what the point that Jesus is making is thoroughly important for us. And that point is that we need to take into account the cost of following Jesus. That if we are to follow Jesus, we need to realize that there is a cost that is going to be required of us. 
and let me make it clear that I'm not talking about a cost in order to earn salvation. Salvation is purely through Jesus Christ and faith alone. There is nothing that we do to earn it. We are not good enough, regardless of who we are, what we've done. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and it's purely by grace and mercy that we can be saved. But once we are saved, once we've received this free gift of salvation, there is a cost for us to follow Christ. Cost not to earn salvation, but a cost of having it for the glory of Jesus, and we need to pursue it. And secondly, I'm not suggesting that it is not, it's not bad, or I'm not suggesting that it's bad to come to know Christ quickly. But what I'm suggesting this morning is important for us to understand what we're getting ourselves into. Because if we don't understand, our expectation is going to be one thing, but our reality is going to be something different, and we're going to be bitterly disappointed. Because Christ isn't giving us the life that we thought we would have when we came to him. Because ultimately he has called us to something else. A life that is radically lived for him. A life that has a cost. A life that means something. I just think of it as, as an army. We are called in scripture that we need to be the army of God. That we are soldiers of Christ. And what a sad day it is when people enroll into the army without taking into account that there's going to be warfare. And the same with us as church. To know that there is a war in which we need to fight. There's battles that need to be won for the glory of Jesus. Not physically and literally, but spiritually. And those things are going to count and they're going to, be, going to require of us a lot of commitment. And there's going to be a cost to that. We have this wonderful a wonderful joy of knowing that the war's already won in Jesus, that Jesus is victorious and one day he will come back and finish this war, but there are still battles that we need to fight and there's still a cost that is required of us to follow Jesus over and over again. And so I encourage you this morning to understand what the cost that is required to follow Christ. The second man we see um, he comes along and he says to Jesus, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Seems pretty reasonable, right? I mean, this could be one of two scenarios. It could be that his father has just recently died and um, he just wants to mourn his father's death and he's asking Jesus, let me just first go and do that, then I'll come and follow you. Seems reasonable. The second one, which I hold more to, um, but regardless, it doesn't really matter, is that his father has probably just gone on in age and he's hanging around going, Jesus, just let me, my dad um, died. It might take a few years. It might take a few months. I don't know. But once that has happened and I've buried him, I will come and follow you. And essentially what this, this, this disciple that's come to Jesus and said these words is doing what Jewish uh, sons were required to do, take care of their parents and bury them. This was something in which they were meant to do. So what is Jesus trying to get across here? Well, firstly, he's not trying to get across that taking care of your parents is a bad thing, all right? He definitely is not saying that because that's one of the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and mother. In fact, we see that Jesus gets upset with the Pharisees in the New Testament for them not taking care of their parents. They'd come up with a brilliant way not to take care of their mother-in-law. It, it went like this. They went, well, we need to give money to the temple so we're going to give up and beyond money to the temple and then turn around and say to our, our, 
but folks in our in-laws, sorry, we can't take care of you. We have no money because we've given it all away to the temple. And Jesus gets really upset with them and says, while you might think that is a righteous act, your number one responsibility is to look after your folks. And nowhere in the New Testament do we see either any, anything that disemphasizes the, the Ten Commandments to, to go and um, look after our father and mother, or in Deuteronomy 27, uh, verse 16, it says, Cursed is the man who dishonors his father and mother. So what is Jesus really trying to get across here then? I think Jesus is more concerned with this disciple that not so much that he would attend and bury his parents, but more that he would just have a mere qualified discipleship. What do I mean by that? That this disciple would do as little as possible in the interim until, it feels, um, until he feels it's more okay. So Jesus in, in scripture makes statements that are bold and statements that might seem extreme to kind of get a point across but doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be taken literally. So, for example, let me qualify that. Example, in Matthew 5, um, a couple of chapters back, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to lust, that you should gouge it out. And if your hand um, causes you and touches something that is forbidden, you should cut it off. Now, Jesus is not necessarily saying that we must, uh, that uh, self um, mutilation is effective way of dealing with sin, but what Jesus is saying is that we need to deal with sin radically, that we needed to go to the root of the sin, and we must do it at all costs. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. And effectively, in the same way what Jesus is trying to say is not so much that he should not be concerned for his parents, but if his concerns for his parents become more important to him than following Christ, he values his, his concern for his parents too highly. And so the, the challenge for us here is what are we placing emphasis on and what excuses are we coming up with in order to follow Christ at the later stage or not follow him wholeheartedly now? So, for example, if there are any teens in this room, it's, oh man, I'm young. When I'm older, I will do it. And for those of us who've been in young adult ministry, Rog, Mark, one of our biggest frustrations is those who get married, newlyweds. They just drop off the scene. Why? Because we're just enjoying ourselves and spending time with together. Or they get, they fall pregnant and they're going to have a kid and they have give birth and then they never pitch up. Why? Because our kid's too young. So we will we'll get involved in church at a later stage. Or we start to make excuses like, well, our business is struggling. I've got to put more time into this so I don't follow Christ wholeheartedly now. But once the business is going well, then I will follow him. Then the business goes well and we're going, well, this requires me to um, put in effort so I don't follow Christ wholeheartedly now, but once a little bit later down the line, or when I retire and I have more time, or, or when the kids are out of the house, then I'll be more involved. And when we get older, we say, well, actually following and pursuing in the church life is not for us old folk, it's for the young. And so we make up excuses regardless of what stage we're in, and we never wholeheartedly pursue Christ because we always got something that's more important. And Jesus here is saying, come now wholeheartedly to me. Follow me now. Count the cost. Know that it's going to cost you something, but do it now. What excuses are we coming up with? Stages of life, situations that say, oh, the Lord understands. 
this is more important for me to do. No, pursue him now, says Jesus. This is cost church to follow Jesus. I say this, you've heard me say this before, following Christ is not for sissies. We expect it to lay down our lives for this cause, to do it wholeheartedly. And if we are to pursue Christ, we need to do it no matter what the cost and do so now. But I don't mean to discourage you because I know how hard this can be. I'm, I'm, I mess up in this all the time. I'm, I'm the king at excuses. Well, actually the prince. My surname's Prince, so let's just run that. I'm the prince at excuses. But we need to pursue. We need to do our best. We need to go after Jesus. And as I've been saying this morning, we need to count the cost. But there's also a cost in not following Christ. There's a cost in follow him, following him, but there's also a cost in not following him. So what we need to do is we need to compare the two and decide which one is more beneficial for us. So let's do the first one. I'm going to go just through a list of things. First thing we need to count up and compare is the profit and loss. If you decide to follow Jesus, you might lose things in this world, but you'll gain eternal life. Jesus says in Mark 8 verses 36, just a little later in this passage, he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul. We need to count up and compare the praise and the blame. You might be blamed by man for leaving them because you no longer go hang out or do the things that you used to do. You might be mocked and shamed by men. But the God of all creation, the King of kings, the judge of this world will praise you. He will praise you. He will not abandon you and he will give you praise. We count up and compare the friends and enemies. If you choose to follow Christ, you'll be his friend. Yes, Satan will be your enemy and he will do his best to harm you, to make the life as difficult as possible. And then he might even try to take your life. But know that in Christ we have a friend who is able and capable to take care of you, look after you. We see in, in John 10 that he says he holds us in his hand. And that the enemy is unable to pluck us out of it. We are there. He will make sure that regardless of what the enemy does, we will see V-Day. We will see the end when Christ comes back. We will be with him in eternity. It says this in Luke 12 verses 4 and 5. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear for him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Count up and compare life now and the life to come. The present now is tough. The cost that is required for us is tough, no doubt. It is difficult. It is a time of watching, of praying, of fighting, of struggling, of believing and working, but in it is only a few years, and in years to come, we will have a time of rest and peace and comfort in paradise. Compare the struggles now to that that is to come. And that's what Paul does in Romans 8 verse 18. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says in another passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs uh, them all. 
So fix your eyes on the things, uh, not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The next thing we need to compare is count up and compare the pleasures of sin and the happiness of serving God. The pleasures of sin, and we've all dwelt, uh, uh, dwelt in them, done them. We know that they are fleeting. They might be quick like a, and, and hot, but they quickly are quenched. But following Christ, the joy now on this side of the grave even, is uncomparable to what um, that of just the fleeting, disappearing sin and pleasures of this world. That it will last regardless of our health, regardless of our circumstances, there's a joy there that is for us that lasts. And counts up and compare the trouble um, that true Christian entails and compare to the troubles that are in store for the wicked beyond the grave. Grant for a moment that reading our Bible and praying and striving for a life that is holy is not easy. It's very difficult. But it is far worse in one day in hell than it is in all our lives that we have to strive towards. And why I tell us that we need to compare the cost, that we need to count the cost before following Christ because there's a cost in living for Him. There is. And if we don't, we're going to be bitterly disappointed and fall away. But if we know the cost that is coming our way and that is tough and we seek Him wholeheartedly now and do not wait. But if you count off the costs that are not following Christ, yes, life might be what you desire now, but eternity is going to be different. And if you have to weigh up the two, while this must cost us our life, it is far cheaper than what this will expect of us at some point. Count up the costs. And so I'm going to ask Mark and Mark if they would come up to the uh, communion table. And we're going to dive into communion. And what do we, when we do this, I, I encourage us to first realize the cost in which Christ has expected from us. But also when we do that, we realize the cost that Christ has paid for us. That he came and he died for us on the cross with a, a price that we could not pay. Our sin was too great for us to bear. Each and every single one of us do not deserve it, but it is purely by the grace of Jesus that we are saved. So as we come around and we partake of the grape juice and we partake of the body, we are reminded that there has been a greater cost that has been paid for us. And while there's this expectation for us to lay down our lives, to pursue Christ wholeheartedly, he has paid so much more for us. And he promises to be with us for all eternity because of that wonderful sacrifice that he has made. Lord, we are just so grateful that you have come and you've called us sons and daughters because of the sacrifice that you have made for us. That as we sit here this morning, for those of us who have believed in you and confessed our sins, that we know that we have a right standing, um, right standing before you, not because of what we have done, but purely because of what Christ has done for us. So we are so thankful, Lord, that you would love us so much, that you would pour out your mercy and grace upon us, that we might come to know you, not only for now, but also for the rest of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.